Welcome back to this is our design sound on site Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I'm Sean Coletti, contributing writer at Sound on Site, and I'm joined as always by Kate Kolsik, TV editor at Sound on Site. Kate, this is very early in the morning for me, so I I will excuse you if you do not participate in the drinking because I don't think I will be either. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say uh, when we yeah to peak. Give listeners a peek behind the curtain. Uh, we will not be drinking today because it's very early for us. Uh, but in my mind, especially to go with this episode, I'm drinking a lovely uh, Cusqueña Dark. It has, has coffee notes. It's like the only time I've had a beer and gone, oh, I can taste the blah. So I felt appropriate for this episode. They're delicious. If, you, if no one's ever had Cusqueña, for whoever hasn't had Cusqueña, it's a delicious beer. Um, and it would be nice if it was late enough that I could be drinking one now. How about you, Sean? What would you be drinking? Um, oh, I don't know. Probably a beer brewed in Cabernet Sauvignon barrels. Very themed. So we won't be drinking, and but we will be introducing a very special guest. This week we're going to be talking about uh, Season 1, Episode 7, Sorbet, written by Jesse Alexander and Brian Fuller and directed by James Foley. Uh, and to help us with the discussion uh, is Molly Eichel from the AV Club, who has been reviewing the show since its inception. So this is a very special treat. Molly, thank you for agreeing to come on, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you guys for having me. Just as a reminder for listeners, we'll be treating this season of This Is Our Design as mostly spoiler-free. There will be a section near the end of the podcast in which we will talk about uh, this episode in relation to future episodes of Hannibal, uh, and that will be marked in the post on the website. So for any listeners who are worried about that, there will not be spoilers until that section, and feel free to fast-forward at that point. All right, so let's get into it. Uh, will says that he sees the Ripper in this episode as a pitiful thing, something that's born in a hospital and then is kind of just left there to die. But in this case, he doesn't die, and he winds up looking normal, and no one can really tell what he is. Uh, Molly, does this episode, which features Hannibal more prominently than any of the ones before, give you a better idea of what he is? Yeah, um, I th one of the things that I really liked about this episode kind of to begin with is it right it gave you more shades of Hannibal which you never saw before because um, he was it was kind of the Will Graham show before and he was so much of a central figure and I thought that was necessary because you know you already know who Hannibal is everybody most people coming into this already has this idea of who this guy is and who this villain is but you needed to like really introduce Will and make, you know, you needed to like introduce the guy you're supposed to root for. So I think that this is the episode where they really were like, okay, this is going to be the Hannibal show. And then throughout the rest of the series, it was much more even, it was much more balanced of who was kind of, that there was, a, you know, two central figures rather than one. And you get a lot more of the dichotomies and things like that between the two characters. But um, this specifically in this episode, you get much more of a sense of who he is. You also see that like, you also get more layers of that, yeah, he's not this right, untouchable evil as he's been played in the past. He has like, you know, he's lonely and he wants a friend. And like you see, you get like this sense of not sympathy for him because you never really feel sympathy for Hannibal Lecter, but you get a certain sense of shades of who this character is rather than, you know, this just like untouchable force of evil who is always going to win out and is evil for evil's sake. You know, you get the sense that like, he wants, he wants to hang out with Will and he wants to like, you know, he wants to create this like weird psychopath family that he can hang out with for a, a while and not, you know, have someone to cook for. I absolutely agree. And I love 
Um, it's, it's so funny to think of Hannibal in this context. I love the way that the episode, uh, so strongly introduces Franklin as this, uh, figure of ridicule, even just in the, the pilot, I think, or maybe it's episode two, that, that look Hannibal gives him when he puts his used tissue down on, on Hannibal's like chair or table or whatever. From that moment on, Hannibal, uh, Franklin is a figure of ridicule, but this episode draws a very distinct parallel between Franklin and Hannibal. And to have the, this episode be the one that really tries to humanize or get you to like Hannibal, while it also is by far the most explicit episode to this point of, yeah, he's eating people. Uh, it, 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 <laughs> right. it's, it's just, I, I appreciate the cheek of that. Okay, well, I have I have a couple more questions related to everything that's been brought up so far. Uh, let's go with Franklin, because you've just mentioned him, Kate, and to me, it's odd because the the episode clearly portrays him as something somewhat pathetic, and um, through Hannibal's eyes, certainly, he kind of finds him repulsive in some ways. And yeah, I, I think... Of Franklin, at the very least, quite intelligent, but yet also this desire to connect with people uh, is something that I find noble. So, what I mean, like, do you relate to that? What are your opinions of Franklin? I really love that they they give Franklin a moment of clarity and insight into Hannibal when he's speaking with Hannibal. He says something about the 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 dull ache of loneliness, or loneliness has a dull ache, doesn't it? But it doesn't feel like the like Franklin is searching for or looking for uh, approval or uh, um, looking for Hannibal to back up what he's saying as in like he's unsure of himself it instead feels like he recognizes in Hannibal the loneliness that he feels like it gives him insight into Hannibal's character in something that Hannibal hasn't intended for him to see and and just this little tiny exchange this little tiny bit of dialogue tells you so much about you know, why, you know, like the, the, the positive elements of this character and why, why, why we should like him or care about him or really invest in him more than maybe these other victims of Hannibal's. And I, I also got to say, I love this performance by Dan Fogler. He's an actor that I had not seen in a dramatic context. I pretty much only just seen him in Balls of Fury before this, like specifically. <laughs> and it was such a wonderful surprise. And I, I think he did such a great job. And it's, he's one of the, the guest stars that I think, uh, doesn't get credit the way like when when um when um Jillian Anderson shows up we all freak out and it's amazing because she's awesome but I don't think people don't give Dan Fogler enough credit for his performance as Franklin it's it's moving in some ways and what you mentioned about him talking about the dull ache of loneliness I also wonder if this isn't him um just I guess trying to impress Hannibal that through understanding, and I think that's something that happens a lot on this series, that uh, characters will make these kinds of movements to woo people in certain ways. Um, but yeah, there's also the aspect that he wants to, when he's talking about that Michael Jackson experience that he had, he wants to save people from themselves, and in a weird way, Hannibal kind of does that too. Uh, Molly, why can't Franklin and Hannibal be friends? 
Well, I think that like your like this show to me has always been, especially the first season, very specifically the first season has always been this kind of balance between Hannibal and you know usually it's Hannibal and Will where he finds his where he finds his equal or he finds his counterpart. But this, um, but Franklin and and Hannibal, you know, he's kind of the this you know he when when Doctor Demorier talks about how Hannibal's wearing a person suit, you know, the kind of Franklin is the, like the ball of neuroses that Hannibal is too strong and like too icy to actually ever show. So I think that like you see this counterpart of someone who like so desperately needs human contact versus someone else who is, um, who is so, is trying to throw off human contact is trying to throw off, but like also desperate, you know, also secretly wants that same human connection, that same like desire to be friends. So you see like, so, you know, Franklin is the like opposite of Hannibal in that he's not as well kept. He's um, he's you know he clearly his neuroses are bubbling over to the point where he is like pseudo stalking Hannibal and things like that. Um, so like there's there's that there's that aspect that like he's the he's everything that Hannibal sees wrong within possibly himself or kind of you know he's just everything that Hannibal sees is incorrect and kind of just not. You know, he's he's like the the perfect example of of what he wants to get rid of, and rather than what he wants to associate himself with, which would be Hannibal. We'll we'll get to Jillian uh, Anderson in just a moment, but I want to stick with, uh, just a little bit longer with this. Molly, you mentioned that the, the human connection aspect is something that Hannibal doesn't necessarily need, but we get the feeling that he wants. Uh, what he does connect with, though, in this episode is art. So we see him mm-hmm. pretty much moved to tears by music. Um, mm-hmm. And one char- one character who he has praised uh, so far is the person <clears throat> who is named, whose name means beautiful, literally, like art. And that was Bella and mentioning that, you know, the world is better with her in it. So he has this kind of gravitation to um, I guess his subjective beauty, and I mean, do you find this quality of appreciating beauty, which is something that is exclusive to, to human beings, um, a, a thing that makes Hannibal more real to you? Yeah, I mean, it's also you know it shows that it also gives this other layer of, of high taste and high class, and um, it it once again kind of takes away that facade that he's this undeniable evil who you know makes it ground him as a villain that um that he has this kind of like high class taste and this high this highfalutin view of the world um and appreciates appreciates beauty in the way that he appreciates it you know he he appreciates that on such a higher level he appreciates what he appreciates on such a high level that you know everything else doesn't doesn't matter and it certainly does humanize him especially that first scene where you watch him like stand up before everybody else and and things like that it's you know when he's giving the standing ovation at the beginning of the opera um yeah it does give him it does humanize him in this way where it makes him something more than just just absolute evil we get that line from him when he's speaking with alana it's not what you appreciate, it's that you appreciate. And I think that's a big part of what drives Hannibal. And, uh, you know, another connection uh, to, uh, you know, women that Hannibal appreciates. And a lot, just like Bella, Alana's another one of them. And we get more, more scenes with her this week. But, yeah, it's that. I think that for him, Franklin 
is is not creating his own appreciation. He's not. Uh, he doesn't have his own uh, personality and uh, appreciation uh, things that he appreciates because he's mimicking what he thinks Hannibal will like. And uh, so there's a phoniness to that and uh, a falseness that Hannibal can't appreciate. Whereas Alana says, I don't do this, I do this. You know, I, we have different preferences, but he's completely fine with that because she is her own unique person. You mentioned, Kate, the, that line that Hannibal says to Alana about it's just that you appreciate. This is something that... I think it definitely can be applied to a lot of the characters in Hannibal, but to me, it's such a really insightful and important thing. I don't know. Okay, so we're going to get slightly off topic, but I went out drinking last night, and um, <laughs> I, I usually go on these tirades in which I alienate my friends because I criticize them for who they are. And uh, <laughs> one thing I was criticizing people in general about is the opposite of what Hannibal is talking about. It's... Um, I guess it's like a passive interest in life, and so I think many many people might uh, accumulate different interests, certain things, and yet they're not really passionate about any one of them. Um, I guess it's also similar to that idea of you should be very good at one thing rather than being mediocre at several things. Um, and I think that this is something that Hannibal might also agree with, that's even if it's a passion that has nothing to do with anything that I'm interested in or that I have any understanding of, like simply that passion itself is something that's really appealing because it, I guess it just shows an appreciation of life. Um, so I don't know um, where I was going with that, but it was a point that I think that really resonated with me in this episode in a way that um, this isn't spoilery, but I've always had a, have had a hard time throughout both of these seasons really connecting with Hannibal Lecter and I had forgotten about this line of dialogue and this is something that really stood out in terms of me being able to relate to him. That's fun uh, because for me when you're talking about that that obviously uh, when we're recording Comic-Con is coming up and uh, that is one of the things that makes Comic-Con so special for me is that everybody there is passionate about something uh, and it might not be stuff that I care about but the way that I care about, I don't know, like Doctor Who or just TV in general, some or some, you know, Buffy, Harry Potter, some of these different things, the way that I care about that, they care about fill in the blank. And you, it's it's great to identify that passion in other people. And so uh, slightly different, you know, worlds, Hannibal, Comic-Con. I hope to see a little Hannibal at Comic-Con. <laughs> uh, but I think that is something that's very relatable and understandable. Yeah, and to me, that's the example of um, when when Bedelia differentiates between who Hannibal really is versus the the human veil. Um, to me, as he's appreciating that art, something that he's passionate about. That yeah, that is the real Hannibal Lecter. Uh, but let's mm -hmm. get to Gillian Anderson because we've mentioned her a few times, and it's about time we get a little bit more in depth. And to me, as I was watching this the first time through, so when this was airing live, I was already getting a little bit of an X-Files vibe for the series, and lo and behold, she appears. Uh, and so Hannibal and Bedelia share only one scene in this episode, but it feels like a lot more than that because of its significance and its weight, I think. Uh, Molly, what is it that makes this new character so immediately interesting? 
Well, she has insight into this, you know, she has insight into Hannibal that we haven't had before, that we, you know, as an audience, they haven't expanded to the full range of, you know, to the full range that we eventually meet him in. But she has, you know, this knowledge that we don't even know about, and she announces that right away by saying, you know, she announces that right away by talking about how um, how she knows, she kind of knows what's going on, and she tips her, she tips her hat that way, and that, you know, we don't know anything about this guy, and as Kate kind of said earlier, this is the first episode where they really, they really like hammer home who this, he's the character that we've, we've known through various films and various books and things like that. But um, this was, you know, she, she's the only person for the first time who, who you get the sense knows way more than we do. It's, you know, more omniscient than the omniscient viewer. And she, um, you know, she, she knows more than we do. And she's, she, kind of holds it over his head a little bit so she's kind of also the only character who's a step ahead of him as well she's also the performance from jillian anderson i i, I wrote in my notes scully because i remember thinking that when uh when this episode aired it was like all of a sudden jillian anderson was on my tv and i hadn't seen her there for quite a long time so it was just a wonderful surprise and the energy she brings to the role and to the show is is fantastic. But it, like I've talked about several times in this first season, thinking about representations of some of these characters as as being uh, presented opposites of of our characters, or, or or something to to recontextualize the other characters. We feel like mm-hmm. Hannibal is a very still presence, um, a very um, inscrutable presence, and then we meet Doctor Du Maurier. And she's even more still. You can't. You, she, the, she's so measured in her speak speech, especially in this episode. She makes Hannibal look fussy, and uh, and so to have someone in that same vein as Hannibal, but uh, it's immediately so intelligent, so so canny, and you know to have us spend so little time with her, I think is very yeah. And to have her be in a position of authority over Hannibal to some extent due to their relationship as psychiatrist and or psychologist and, and um, patient that immediately makes her interesting. And then when you add in the casting and these other elements that tie the whole episode together with these themes of uh, dependency and isolation and all of that, it's just a great character introduction. It's certainly a brilliant move in terms of the casting. Um, and, and yeah, just immediately from the first few exchanges that they have, in which they're talking about honesty and perfect honesty, she's just very upfront about the, the the bullshit really that Hannibal's putting on, and says, you know, one of us needs to be perfectly honest, and Hannibal says that he's honest, and she says, well, not really, not perfectly, and so that established relationship I think is is fantastic. Were there any other comments that either of you want to mention before we move on regarding uh, Demoye? I um I just right like Gillian Anderson in this is is so utterly perfect because um this is also the first episode where we see kind of Hannibal like the warmer funnier side of Hannibal and that's kind of counteracted by like the ice queen that Gillian Anderson portrays that I know this is not a spoiler and we're not supposed to talk about later episodes but that she she kind of gets icier as the sea you know as it goes on and as we learn a little bit more about her but um you know she she's just like this great counterpart to this already very closed off very icy guy she's she's like the perfect person to play this i'm so glad that she kind of continued this role well and also just because it it's such an interesting great character and so well portrayed as we've been saying but it also this is episode seven and we're meeting her it tells you 
it, it reminds the viewer that there is a lot more potentially going on in these characters' lives that we haven't seen yet. We don't know them completely. If we are only meeting Hannibal, a, a, a relationship this significant for Hannibal in episode seven, there's a lot that Hannibal and by extension the show has not shared with us yet. You know, I hadn't even paid much attention to that. And without getting too spoilery, this happens again in season two where we get a major character who just feels like, oh, well, this person is clearly a part of this world. And how have they not existed before? And, and this happens with with Bedelia, where that's really smart, I think, plotting for the season. So to to get these really important characters several episodes later, we didn't get you know Gina Torres uh, as as Bella until a few episodes in. Um, so that was great. But yeah, well, well, let's talk about Jack actually. Now that I've mentioned uh, uh, Bella and Kate, we've been talking for the past couple weeks about um, kind of his troubles because those episodes have focused quite heavily on him and we see him in this episode um his mind is playing tricks on him to the the point where he's seen a dead will graham with a severed arm and hannibal makes a point of asking will if jack has been humiliated by the the miriam lass events and what's been going on uh how is what jack is going through different than what will is well there's one big way but that's for spoiled meat um uh, but less obviously, uh, I think this is our first time seeing into Jack's mind, right? We got the flashbacks last week, but theoretically those were presented from a third-person perspective. Uh, this is our first glimpse inside Jack's nightmares or his fears, um, and I think it's very effective. And I think it's important because his his behavior with, in regards to Will, we talked about how it didn't seem like... He had maybe learned his lesson from Miriam Lass and what happened. Um, and I like that they're showing us that, no, he is aware of the threat that he's, you know, the danger he's putting Will in and, uh, and, and what has happened in the past to those who relied on him and who he used as tools to find dangerous men. Um, so I think that's important. The difference, I would say, for, for Will and, and for Jack is that for for Jack, he has a very specific point to relate to and to draw upon, and that's obviously Miriam uh, for for Will. And where, with Will, it's more about his psyche, his and his inner demons. It's not about as much about an external force being the threat. Uh, Molly, would you also say that one of the differences might be, I guess, the attitudes that each of these characters take towards these demons that are kind of taking over? Because in Will's case, it's very much a reluctant immersion into what he goes into, um, which is which are the minds of the killers. And so we see him kind of not wanting to push that too much. But Jack is kind of willingly becoming obsessed with this to the point where he's talking about um, going underneath the law to get revenge on the Ripper. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, right, it shows so much about a character when you put them in a stressful situation, and clearly Jack is going through a very traumatic, stressful experience in this episode. You're kind of seeing the aftermath of that traumatic experience. Um, and I think when you put a character in a stressful situation and how they deal with that kind of shows so much about that character. And and one of the reasons that the show is so good was is that you never see – you know, it just based on the movies and, and things like that, you never see a character like, you know, Jack Crawford be put in that situation, but these are such well-drawn characters that 
they can be put in various other situations in which they're you know they're tested and he's being tested right now and yes it does show so much about him and and how he reacts to um you know how he reacts to this like very stressful situation and you know and, and that is kind of in line with later episodes when he's also put in other various stressful situations but yeah this is um just because this is the kind of the will and hannibal show doesn't mean that other characters kind of can't have that inner that inner life and that inner workings and um, it also shows kind of the desperation, this, like the beginnings of his desperation to like by any means necessary. Um, and, you know, Alana talks about it a little bit um, in this episode about kind of the will sacrifices that Jack is willing to sacrifice kind of will sanity for in order to catch this guy. And this is one of the, you know, this is one of the reasons why he does this is that like he's, you know, he's really losing it over Miriam and, um you know, it's that's it's just kind of an important it's an important piece of that puzzle because if you don't see why he's losing it, you don't really see why he's pushing Will into that situation. So like you're like, okay, well he's he's just lost his protege and uh, or he's like kind of reliving this trauma of losing his protege. So like now you understand why he's pushing Will as hard as he does. Yeah, and you're right that um, that this really isn't just the the Will and Hannibal show. Okay, I don't know if you would agree with this, but I was talking to one of my friends last night, and kind of this experience of going back to season one and doing this um, has really surprised me in many ways, because my friend had said, oh, I remember season one, and Jack Crawford didn't really have much of a part. And I think that if you were to ask me before we started doing this, uh, while, while we were doing season two, I might have said the same thing. But, man, these last few episodes, and including this one, have been really good to... Lawrence Fishburne and Jack Crawford. Well, and what I would actually add is I would have said that season one didn't have much for Alana, and she's gotten a lot more to do than I remembered, uh, and her scenes have been a lot more interesting. Of course, with the context of season two, that certainly helps. But, um, but yeah, and uh, same thing with with Beverly. I had I certainly did not remember how prominent Beverly is throughout all of season one. The other texts they're less prominent. I've, I've issues with them in this episode, but, um, but yeah, I would absolutely agree. Jack has had plenty to do in this, this first season. Um, uh, but I get maybe just because Lawrence Fishburne has such a commanding presence. Um, I, I, I had a stronger impression of that when I was watching season two of Jack's involvement in season one, as, a, as compared to, um, some of these others, uh, you know, Alana and Beverly and some of the other characters, but, uh, no, it really is. It's very interesting to go back and rewatch season one after watching season two. Yeah, I I have some things to say about Alana in the spoiler section, but was there anything that you wanted to mention about her now? Because she's been brought up a couple times. Uh, Molly, do you have anything? Well, no, I agree with you that, like, I kind of forgot that she did so much, <laughs> um, mainly because like, one of my big criticisms of season one, and that most definitely extended to season two, was that um, she didn't have much to do. Like, here's this fabulous actress in Carolyn DeVernis, and you're not. And, like, clearly Brian Fuller sees that, or else he wouldn't have hired her. And... They're kind of not using her. It, it annoyed me that they didn't use her to the degree that they did. And, um, you know, there's she's, like, she's so good when she, like, really, when they, like, really let her out. There's a couple episodes where, like, she's allowed to, like, she freaks out at one, at one point. She, um, you know, she kind of gets angry. And, you know, you really see the power that this actress has. And it, it kind of bothered me that she... Um, she didn't like get as much time. I did think it was funny in this episode. I forgot that this was the episode where you have like the beginning of the Alana Hannibal sexual chemistry aspect. Um, 
which I at the time thought was like, you know, I remember thinking it was like kind of ludicrous, <laughs> but like, and like a little weird because you, you never think of Hannibal as a surprise character ever. He's never in that context unless, well, the, unless you, you actually read the Hannibal book at the end of Hannibal, there's, he's kind of thought of as a sexualized character, but before that he's like very much a, I never ever thought of him as a sexualized being. And then like in this episode, you see him like, you know, Mads Mikkelsen's a sexy guy. Like you watch him, like, you know, so you watch them flirt and like do that thing together. So I, I, I kind of forgot that this was the episode in which that, that happened. Yeah. We'll talk more about Alana when we get to spoiled meat. Uh, I think that's a good call, uh, Sean. The only other Alana stuff I have that does not involve that or isn't what uh, Molly just said. Uh, first of all, her dress is super cute. And second of all, uh, the who, who would not want to have a private stock curated by Hannibal? That's got to be some yeah. amazing beer. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I'm a whiskey also... drinker myself, though, so like I, I probably wouldn't even like it. <laughs> I'm, but I'm sure if Hannibal picked out some whiskey for you, it'd be damn good. Oh, yeah, it'd be really, really good. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't yeah, be like, you know, Jim Beam or something. No, no, it would be like very, very old scotch that there's only two be- uh, two bottles left in the world or something. And right, and um, he has both of them. <laughs> yeah, of well, you got to have a backup, you know, one for work, one for home. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree that uh, Ross Mickelson, definitely an attractive guy, but this role has made him just very, very intimidating and kind of creepy. <laughs> oh, man, that'll let that just see. It's the bad boy thing. It just leads to the allure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, one one final question before we get into some of the recurring segments for the podcast. Uh, Molly, we usually talk about how Hannibal integrates its weekly plots into kind of larger themes going on. I think, for me, this one is a little less obvious than some of the serial killers who seem to have agendas that correlates to other things going on with the other main characters, but do you see this uh, connection happening with the, this episode with the paramedic who is killing people while training? I think that um, I think that you're right that he it's usually much more of a strong connection between kind of the case of the week and um, what's going on kind of in the larger story, which is another reason I'm a sucker for procedurals, but I'm also, you know, but I love a good, I mean, the good wife is the same way. Each, you know, each week they have this case that like, uh, Scandal is actually really bad at this, I think, when they were more of a case of the week show. Uh, and I love Scandal. I say that with utmost respect for Scandal, that they, they used to have these, like, the cases of the week were was, like so obviously connected to what was going on in a larger context. That, um, But, like, Hannibal, I think, is, is fantastic at this. And I think that it's so, I think it's deliberate, almost, that this is, that this kind of case of the week is not attached to the like associated with the larger story that's going on because it's misdirection um i'm forgetting his character name but the aaron abrams character he um you know he he's so convinced that it's the chesapeake ripper but um you know it's it's not so i think that that kind of disconnect between the case of the week and the larger story is very deliberate that they did that kind of on purpose to be like nope it's misdirection um you know don't this is just to kind of flesh out the episode and, and kind of misdirect the characters. But for the most part, like that's not, and um, I think it was very deliberate that that there's kind of that separation between the case of the week and the larger story. And since you brought him up, I gotta, I gotta say some nitpicks here. Cause I, I forgot to, with episode two and another couple episodes, you know, where we get, to, we get talking about all these wonderful elements and I forget to say a couple that maybe I'm not so hot on. And, 
with this episode, the the stuff that they give, especially Aaron Abrams to do, but there's, but really all the text, there's a lot of really unfortunate expo dumping with, uh, with, especially with the CSIs, but lots of, I know this, you know this, you know, I know this, I know, you know, this, Mm -hmm. but we're going to say it anyway. There's a lot of that. It's kind of painful to watch because otherwise the show is so well crafted. Um, and they, it's disappointing that by episode seven, you know, the, uh, Jimmy feels like a character that we don't really know him, but he feels like a character. Z does not yet for me. He, this this did not feel like this is the stance of the character. This felt like we want someone to argue with Will. And it's such a, a disappointing route for them to go. It's kind of like how they did with Freddy, where they wanted to have some person uh, be leaking info to, to Freddy. So they had it be Aaron Abrams because they didn't know what else to do with him, it seems like. Uh Whereas it doesn't make sense for that to be somebody that Jack would handpick to be on his team would be somebody who would do that. Um, and so this, because when they're saying like, they, they make this character, the Z character, just kind of a dick throughout the episode. Like he's like speaking condescendingly to, to Will about um, what the different parts of the heart are. It's like how you, sh- you would know that he knows this. This is, Will Graham's a big deal and he's very knowledgeable about this stuff. So I just it felt like they they still don't know what to do with that Aaron Abrams character. They're gonna use him better in season two, but mm-hmm. um, but I mean, it's episode seven. It's kind of disappointing. I love the little few lines we get from Jimmy though. Yes, I see, and that's actually what that kind of interplay between these two characters. I think that's when they really figured out how to do this, um, like how to deal with those two specifically. Was this is this the, out of from what I remember? This was the, like the first episode. There's there's always these weird super dark funny moments within the show and um like this was the first episode i remember like laughing out loud and being like i really shouldn't be laughing at this show but it's hilarious (laughs) this episode is like particularly funny and there's like a lightness to it it's kind of like a lightness like a like a slyness to this this you know where they're kind of smiling so i can see the writers kind of like smiling out of the corner of their mouths while they're writing some of this dialogue and i think that like that the kind of like odd couple interplay that Jimmy and Z have that, like, you know, that they they really expand on later. And that's not a, you know, it's just they become much more prevalent in the team, this kind of, like, where they, like, bitch at each other a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of really where they figure it out in this episode. And they're like, oh, these two are hilarious together. Like, let's just have them, like, snap at each other all the time, kind of pick at each other. And um, just like, you know, you have your coworkers who that's who you do that with. And, like, this is one of those episodes where I'm like, oh, I think they kind of figured out the chemistry between those two. That, like, they didn't necessarily need to do a lot, but, like, they, could, they could come in one, two times every episode, say something funny, and leave. And I like that they, after... I, I could be not remembering, but I like that that the show gets away from this idea that we need to have an antagonist to Will, because in the first um, in her first moments, Beverly sort of is that for for Will as well. Like she's in, interrupting his space and and uh, is is a problem for him. And, and in this episode, uh, Z feels that you know why are we listening to this Will Graham guy kind of role. Um, that, but in a, in sort of a, a bitchy way as opposed to a passionate way. Um, and so I like that the show kind of gets away from that and has all the characters be a bit more respectful to each other because I feel like they should all recognize how good everybody on this team is. 
I agree with everything that both of you have been saying, and I will add that although uh, Zeller isn't the greatest of characters, Abrams gets one of the best moments in this episode, which is the what the fuck face as Will shuts the door on him as he's talking. <laughs> that was pretty great, yeah. Like, it's it's funny because the first time I encountered Aaron Abrams was this, this like, I was those romantic lead and slings and arrows so he's just it's very nice to see him like do something completely different i used to, he's one of my like those two are like two of my favorite aspects of the show they're just yeah. like every time they come on screen i like start to giggle and of course aaron abrams has a hilarious twitter for anyone who when when hannibal season three comes back assuming he keeps doing it the live tweets by aaron abrams are amazing I never All see right, the live tweets because I would get the screener. Oh, now I'll have to now have to go back and read them. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, they're pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to our recurring segments. And uh, even though this wasn't exactly super fresh in my mind, I remember this episode and also next week's being two of my favorite from this season. And one of those reasons is something that Kate, I'm sure, will be talking about in Kate's classical corner. So, Kate, what can you tell us about the scoring in Sorbet? <sighs> It's so good. <laughs> I love it so much. Um, well, before I, because there, this is going to be a long segment. Bef before I get into the, some of the specifics of it, I just wanted to see if you, what impressions you guys had about the different, the use of music. I mean, I have a few things besides the classical stuff. I, I mean, the, the, was it just me? I, the music in the bathroom when they're at the crime scene, that felt very psycho to me because it was the high strings or maybe blowed percussion, very dissonant. And of course, there, there's a shower right there. So I, even though it's a very different rhythm, the, the just the sound world of, of the, that instrumentation was very um, uh, reminiscent for me. Uh, the music throughout is very the scoring is very kind of um, creepy and and plunky, which matches with the rain we get at certain points in the episode, but carries throughout the entire episode. It's not just that, and it's a very different kind of sound than we've gotten previously, or even that we will get later on, specifically in season two, for for Hannibal or for violence or for these kind of actiony scenes. Um, but yeah, the, the, in general, I really liked the the scoring and the the soundtrack choices. Uh, before I get into the, the classical pieces, though, do you guys have any thoughts on the music? I know nothing about classical music, so I'm just like, ooh, it's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> they like, I, scored the episode just, with like Bruce Springsteen. I would totally have lots to say. but <laughs> <laughs> Right? Yeah, no, if they incorporated some heavy metal, then this would be a good <laughs> um, no, I Now that you mention it, of course, then the psycho parallels make sense, but that's not something that I had picked up on um, as it was playing. Uh, but this... Uh, other tracks I'm sure that you'll talk about in, in a little while um, were really, um, I don't know any of the technical terms, but very loud and prevalent and kind of very upbeat. So, Yeah, they're very, there's a lot of oppressive scoring. It's like, yeah. Will's late for his appointment. It's the end of the world. Uh, so so <laughs> let, let's, get into, let's get into that. Uh, there are seven or six, I should say, different pieces of classical music used in this episode. So those who aren't fans of class Kate's Classical Corner should fast forward like 10 minutes because we're going to dive deep, people. Um, and they I should also reevaluate their lives. <laughs> well, I, I know I love this stuff. So uh, the the first and last piece in the in the episode are handles Piangero La Sorte Mia, which I'm sure I just destroyed, from Giulio Cesare and Edito, um, Julius Caesar in Egypt, which is a, an opera by, by Handel. Um, the 
first scene is very memorably that amazing moment at the the benefit and then the closing moment of the episode is that same piece that same aria but or in an orchestral version and uh to just you know to talk about that those final moments of the episode it's such beautiful timing uh because whereas the singer in the opening of the episode uh, you know is is going through the the aria at the end the timing of it is very much uh Hannibal speaking uh a closing cadenza uh with the with the harpsichord the baroque scoring underneath it feels very much like Richard Tative scoring and so it's yes so now the soloist is is Hannibal but the the aria is I shall lament my fate, and the Julius Caesar in Egypt at this point this is sung by Cleopatra. She's been imprisoned by her brother Ptolemeo, and uh, she believes uh, she's just lost a, ma- a battle with him. Uh, her army has been defeated, and she believes Caesar to be drowned. Um, so a couple lyrics here translated the whole thing you guys should look it up if you're interested because it's great but um there is no hope left in my life i will bemoan my fate so cruel and brutal as long as there's breath left in my body and when i am dead and become a ghost i will haunt the the tyrant night and day um why the opening line is why then in one day i am deprived of magnificence and glory oh cruel fate um, it, it's just very evocative. And um, when we have at the end, this being Hannibal's moment of glory, uh, it's a nice contrast there. And also just, it sounds gorgeous. So that, I'm going to kind of keep each of these pieces, the information about them brief, because it is, you know, there's so many of them. This is the only Handel that's used in the show to this point. And I believe it's the only Handel used uh like to this point meaning as we record so after season two there's no handel used in the rest of the series yet maybe season three um the next moment uh is mozart's requiem in d minor the lacrimosa which is when uh handel's waiting for will and uh, this is part of the ds irae for the you know requiem being a mass for the dead and the ds irae being a poem uh that is part of the mass for the dead that is the basically about judgment day uh, it this is this was left incomplete when Mozart died. It is uh, if you've seen um, uh, Amadeus, this is part of what he was composing as he was dying. Um, but uh, the the translation of the Lacrimosa is full of tears shall be that day in which from ashes shall rise the guilty uh, man to be judged. Therefore, O, o God, have mercy on on them on him. Gentle Lord Jesus, grant them eternal rest. Amen. And of course, in season two, we will get a very memorable use of Foray's Requiem in a couple episodes. Um, but in uh, that also, those when it's used there, it's also used um, for notable Hannibal and Will scenes. And so, uh, yeah, I guess spoiler for season two, Hannibal and Will are both on the show. But uh, but this is you know it's it's Judgment Day, so so Hannibal <laughs> is waiting for Will to show up, and he doesn't, and it's. The scoring for it is this super tragic, very famous, very well-known bit from Mozart's Requiem about uh, Judgment Day and have mercy on on man for his sins. So I think that's kind of hilarious and awesome. Next up is uh, the the meat preparation scene where where they're cutting back and forth between the CSIs. Uh, I think it's Jimmy says... Or somebody they're making making sausage, and we cut to Hannibal making sausage. 
Uh, that's Gounod's Ronde du Vaudor from his Faust. It, this is the only Gounod used on the show up and through the end of season two, again, to my knowledge. And it's the only use of Faust. Uh, so, again, very specific. This is from the second act of Faust. And it's sung by Mephistopheles about the golden calf. And some of the lyrics from there... Uh, the calf of gold is the victor over the gods, but in its derisory glory, the uh, abject monster insults heaven. It contemplates a weird frenzy at his feet, the human race, hurling itself about iron in hand, in blood and in the mire, where gleams the burning metal and Satan leads the dance. So you know. All right, let's, let's, let's pause just a moment right there, because I swear, if you go back and listen to our season two podcasts there was a point where i mentioned specifically that hannibal was mephistopheles so this is very enlightening and i feel good about myself isn't it great (laughs) and it's so it's such a great um the the music itself is gorgeous so if you don't have the context for it it just sounds cool uh and it's very epic scoring like you were saying earlier sean the um all these different pieces are very dramatic moments very operatic moments the operas and the not operas as well um so yeah when I, when I looked up the translation i was like holy crap i know it was i knew it was from faust i didn't realize it was sung by the devil and of course you know all this stuff about the in in um the lacrimosa as well in in the the handel as well uh having this there's a thread of the um the cruel fate for humanity or that um, humans is lesser than uh, in need of judgment, in need of these other things. And so, yeah, it's, there's a reason I was geeking out about this episode. Okay. We're only halfway there guys. Cause next up is Chopin's uh, prelude opus 28, number three, uh, number 13 in F sharp uh, major, which is when uh, Alana has that scene with Hannibal. And this is the third use of Chopin on the show so far. First, it was used in episode four when when Alana and and, um, Hannibal shared that beer uh, and he had the wine in her office. And then again in episode six when we had dinner with Alana and Chilton and Hannibal. First, it was the Nocturne, then the Ballade. So thus far in the show, and this does change in season two, but thus far in the show, uh, Chopin seems to be the Alana music for the classical scoring. This is, uh, was nicknamed by, um, two different famous pianists went through and gave like nicknames or just associations for the different preludes. Um, and so, uh, Hans van Bülow calls this one loss and, uh, in a different kind of take on it from Alfred, Alfred, uh, Courteau, uh, on the foreign soil under a night of stars and thinking of my beloved far away. Um, and usually the, um, I think the more commonly like accepted interpretation tends to be that second one. Um, but it's a very simple piece. It's gorgeous. Um, and it requires a very delicate touch because otherwise it could sound plunky because, because left, it is a more simple, uh, score or more simple rhythms and, and everything. So you have to be very delicate with it to really coax out the, the beauty of, of the piece. Um, yeah, it's easy to overplay it and then ruin the balance. And so I think that's very fitting for for the scene and also just for, for Alana and, and Hannibal. Um, any thoughts on Chopin before I move forward? Uh, I guess I'd want to read more of the lyrics for that. But uh, no, I just keep going. Okay. Next up, uh, the the um, of course, there are, the, the Chopin didn't... He didn't write programmatic music the way that, obviously, the Gounod and the Mozart and the Handel are all telling a specific story. Uh, Chopin 
uh, that's not what he how he was composing for that piece, but um, but it's still very evocative scoring. Next up is Verdi, and this is the emergency surgery that we see. This is the Coro di Profundis um, Scorsese, for, uh, so that means the the chorus of um, of the the Scots. Uh, uh, Patria Oppressa from Macbeth. So Verdi's Macbeth. This is again the only Verdi used in the show so far uh, through season two. The only use of Macbeth through the show so far to the end of season two. Again, to my knowledge, uh, and this is the opening ar- the opening chorus of the of the piece. So while the the Scottish refugees are they're there and they're near the English border, and of course, um, oppressed homeland or downtrodden country is the translation of the title. But uh, again, the the some of the the translation of the the what's being sung, you cannot have the sweet. Um, I, I'm going to start from the second stanza, uh, from orphans for from from orphans from those who mourn. Some for husbands, some for children. At each new dawn, a cry goes up to outrage heaven. To that cry, heaven replies as if moved to pity, oppressed land. It would proclaim your grief forever. The bell tolls constantly for death, but no one is so bold as to shed a vain tear for the suffering and dying. There's no use crying for for uh, the, those who are suffering and, and dying. There's so much grief and so much death in this world. I mean, come on. It's, it's great evocative stuff. Um so, so that's that's um, for the surgery scene. Um, th- and then next we have um, Vivaldi's. The last one I'll talk about is uh, the f- you know the Four Seasons, uh, winter, the the Largo movement, and that's when when uh, Hannibal is cooking, uh, preparing his feast, uh, which we see him talking with Will. Uh, and Vivaldi wrote a sonnet, or well, he paired a sonnet with e- with each of the Four Seasons. Concerti, spring, summer, autumn, or uh, fall, and uh, winter. And so the, the part of the sonnet that goes with this movement, the, the Largo of winter, is to spend quiet and happy times by the fire while outside the rain soaks everyone, to walk on the ice with slow steps and so carefully so in, for fear of falling. So again, to have the... the the, it's this idea of like the warm and cozy fire while inside, while outside it's you know, after the first movement of the Vivaldi winter, it's, it's very much about the stinging rain and the biting wind. And then the second movement is, is the warmth of the fire. Um, and, but then I also really keyed into that, that um, the slow steps it's so that you don't, so that you don't fall because you're so precariously perched and in that scene with with Hannibal and and Will there I thought that was very appropriate it's it's oh, there's so many ties between that translation and season 2 finale I know it's so good. <laughs> I'm sorry I know I just this is this is what my my TV geek and music geek heart like loves this is why I love the scoring in Hannibal and the soundtrack as well um but yeah so it's very it's it's amazing fantastic music it's very well performed. I would, I would think we can agree in that opening aria, just a beautiful performance. That's so striking as well, the visuals. And to start with, the vocal cords. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that in Devil in the Details. Um, but to and go into, you know, go out into the the larger, starting internally and going out into the the full presentation. I mean, themes of death and uh, and per and, and uh, the suffering of man and this uselessness of sympathy or, 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 uh, 
uh, are grieving because there's so much destruction in this world. I mean, loss, the show band Lost Prelude. Come on, it's great stuff. <laughs> but uh, I could keep going all day. So I, I think I should stop here because uh, it's already been like 10 minutes at least. And so uh, anybody who wants to talk more about this stuff, hit me up on Twitter at the Televerse. Any it, any other thoughts, uh, Sean, on, on some of these different pieces or the musical moments? Where the, was there one that was particularly effective for you? The the surgery one, I think, was the one that I enjoyed the most. Um, just that playing as Hannibal's kind of just um, blocking the the bleeding, and Will's kind of just looking at him uh, in some amount of awe. Like that was a, a perfect marriage of of song and content. I thought. Mm -hmm. I, I just keep going back to the Lacrimosa um, but yeah oh and I should say by the way the meat prep the, the Gounod with, from Faust that's a comic song in the opera so while we're laughing at the, the back and forth between Jimmy and Z and, uh, and Hannibal like the, the whole song like there's a lot of funny moments there the song is intended to be upbeat and funny and, and all that as well while also having these dark because we know that it's actually being sung by the devil when he sings Satan Leads the Dance, uh, that you know, has those dark undertones as well. So it's just, again, so much to, to really sink your teeth into in the music in this episode, especially contrasted to what we've had before. <laughs> so, uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, we should, we should move on, though. Uh, next up, sir? Next up is the second of our recurring segments, The Devil in the Details and... Uh, just as a disclaimer, we only had access to Molly Eichel for a limited amount of time. She will not be featured in this section, so that's why you will not hear her. It's not that she's there and just, just choosing not to talk, because I'm sure she would have loved to have contributed. Um, but she will be back for the spoiled meat section and to sign off after this. So this will just be the two of us. you want to play Devil in the Details Crossfire? Let's do it. All right. Uh, Ellen Green from Pushing Daisies. Great to see her here. She was supposed to have a bigger role, I think, but it just ended up not working. But uh, that was nice. Yeah, I would love to have seen her back. I don't know how they could do it, but when when she first uh, pops up, I because I, of course I I loved her on Pushing Daisies, and then also you know anybody who's a musical theater fan, she's she's Audrey from from Little Shop. Uh, so so there's that as well. But to have to see that a little bit of that um, that world of Handle the Socialite, and to put a face with the, that circle of acquaintances that he must have, uh, I think was a really smart move. And she's awesome. And I loved her dress too. And her hair, just the whole, all of that was, was just delightful. Uh, I'm going to come right back at you with a, with a big one, which is the stag leading, oh, yeah. leading, um, to the bathroom, to the crime scene. It's such a brief shot of it. I have no idea. Cause there's no Alana. There's no <laughs> Abigail. There's like the other characters we've been queuing, keying into aren't there uh, uh, the, the Ripper is not involved. So why is the stag there? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, <sighs> yeah, I don't know either. It has to do with leading Will to somebody who is in need of help. Or leading uh, him to violence. Depending yeah. on if you want the happy or the darker interpretation. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no idea. So we'll we'll keep having no ideas about the stag for a while, I'm assuming. Yep. Um, a thing that I noticed 
this is not nearly as egregious as Mad Men, but uh, the green screen while Jack and Will are driving, um, and just Jack's motions of controlling the vehicle, that wasn't great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's another one of those... Um, the, the, the dialogue in that scene is very exposition-y. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I really loved the the makeup and the lighting for Hannibal and uh, Dr. Du Maurier during their session because the whenever we looked we were looking at uh, Dr. Du Maurier she her she seems you know she, obviously the performance is very icy but the light is warm on her whereas when we would cut to Hannibal he always he looks pasty he looks like kind of clammy his skin is kind of shiny and um when we look at her the lights like the reflection of the lights in her eyes are very small but round and when you look at him it looks sort of like a slit so it goes to that that kind of shark feel or the fish feel that that, that which is an association that show um i i think has made or certainly will make with hannibal this notion of him as a shark or as as you know an unfeeling fish or something like that so th i thought that was very especially because he looks kind of shiny and that doesn't happen by accident on a show like hannibal that's really interesting i didn't even think about that um yes okay let's see uh franklin sitting forward in his chair just in terms of body language i think uh we see various people, and we'll see more in season two, um, <clears throat> exuding certain qualities just based on how they physically are in Hannibal's office. So I thought that was interesting. Well, yeah, and also Franklin's made a lot of progress because he's not seeing the lion anymore. Yes, this is true. Good on Franklin, right? Um, <laughs> I have another Hannibal thing here, which I didn't like. I I I only saw it. I think on the second time through because I, I as I'm watching this I have paused to write stuff down and then I have to go back and go back a few seconds I didn't notice it right away but um, when Will and Hannibal are talking um, about the I think it's the Chesapeake Ripper and um, Will's listening about he'll do something or say something whatever think about something if another body drops uh, and Hannibal says please do and then he licks his lips <laughs> like oh I didn't even see that to camera it is when you see it it is super creepy <laughs> that's terrifying yeah oh my god yeah <laughs> uh remind me i have a okay i'll, I'll mention that again the looking at the lips in just a moment um uh, so let's see the when will goes to the crime scene and after jack asks everybody to leave the shot is kind of capped off just above will's head and he's crouched down and so you can only see jack in the background as he's leaving um but jack pauses so you can see that he's facing will and he's lingering there for a couple seconds before exiting which i thought was an interesting decision because it's like jack still has to kind of look at will with some form of distance because this is just something that jack will never be able to do or to understand so Will is still very much uh, an object in many ways to be studied. Yeah, I, I didn't even I didn't see that one. I'll have to go back and, and look for it. But that's that's great. I love those little details like that. Um, the I love the, some of the framing uh, in, in the episode, and particularly at the end when we have Hannibal and Will, and, and Hannibal's prepping his his feast, his 
horrible, horrible feast. Oh, another musical moment, of course, with the golden calf. There's talk of like feast that, that makes associations to the the worshiping of idols and the feasting they did around the calf. But um, but I love that when they pull back and realize that there have been three other sous chefs there the whole time <laughs> when they've been talking. I thought that was kind of yeah. great. Uh, my last one is a line of dialogue, and this is when Will and Hannibal are talking. Hannibal says that words are living things. They have personality, point of view, agenda, and um, without spending time interpreting that uh, with regards to Hannibal Lecter's character, I thought that that was just a very great line of dialogue that can be applied elsewhere. Uh, well, the last thing I have is that um, I, I just, again, set design. The I love, I love the look of uh, Demoria's, like, even just, like, the door for her house is so interesting, and the, the, the set there is, again, uh, another very tall, very striking set, so the, this, you know, again, it tells us so much about her personality, because uh, I would, it seems to me that she probably chose everything in that room, and uh, it's very, it's very striking and just gorgeous. They know they know how to do their set design on Hannibal, as everybody already knows. I had a question about that because I think we transitioned shortly after that from the the Bedelia scene to Will's appointment with Hannibal, and he mentions that he was drinking wine. But so, like, what was I was trying to make the connection there. Did, did Hannibal, like, take the bottle of wine back to his place? No, I think he just probably had another rosé. Um, but, yeah, that, I thought that was a really nice uh, moment where we have... Because, <sighs> and again, it goes back to Hannibal being very needy in this episode where he's... And he's, and he's so excited about it. He's like, well, then let's have a drink. We can be buddies, right? Because he's just sort of had... You know, we're friendly, you know, kind of shot down by Du Maurier. In, in their in their session, but then they've shared a glass of wine, and so it's like he's trying to, oh, I'll be, I'll be like De Maurier, you know, like I'll be friendly with Will the way that De Maurier is friendly with me, and maybe that, and then we'll be friends, or, yeah, and it, it, it just he's so excitable in that scene too. He seems like he's very up, uh, and so yeah, that that, that was definitely um, it, it's a little confusing because the way he s speaks of it, it sounds like. That the wine glass is still there from his previous appointment, but his previous appointment was at her house. So he he came back from her place to his office and poured himself a glass of wine that was still sitting there, you know, like in preparation for when Will would get there, and then he could offer a glass of wine, and then Will would see it and comment on, and then he would offer a glass of wine to Will. So I mean, it's just so it's just so. Um, Oh, and then I'll do this, and then you do that, and then we can have a glass of wine together, and then maybe we'll be friends. <laughs> friends. Friends. Serial killer friends. Well, and it doesn't seem like Hannibal makes that connection between himself and Franklin. Do you, do you think he actively does, or is that more of a subconscious connection that he's seeing, and that's why, part of why he doesn't care for Franklin? Um, I think there's various reasons he doesn't care for Franklin. Um... But is it that? Probably. Yeah, I would say that that would be one of them. Well, because it just, it seems so obvious. It's like, you're being a total Franklin right now, Hannibal. But I don't know if Hannibal realizes it. Yeah, I don't think he does either. He's kind of just on a high from talking with Bedelia, which is fun, I guess. 
Yeah. No, it feels, again, like every now and again we get these scenes with Hannibal and Will that feel like, you know, early dating, right? <laughs> and this is one of them. <laughs> so, I don't know. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. And then we'll move on to the spoiler section of the podcast, Spoiled Meat, in which we'll talk about uh, this episode in relation to future episodes. So if you have not seen any future episodes of Hannibal beyond this uh, and would like to remain spoiler-free, fast forward now. Okay, well, my first thing was going to be to talk about uh, Alana, but I guess let's open board, So, because we've kind of mentioned that already. The, I mean, it's they're so flirty. And, like, when I first saw this episode, it, I, I felt like the when he says, why didn't we have an affair, it felt like sort of a slap across the face of, like, wait, we're talking about this and because shows don't usually do that usually it's like lots of people not saying stuff uh but this time watching it, it you know knowing what's going to come later it felt really natural they're, they're so comfortable with each other see i thought i thought this was like i thought this entire plot line was ridiculous I, even in season two when they like got together i was like that's like she just and it bothered me because she had nothing else to do so she like as soon as this started to enter into the first season i was like no don't make her this she's already a sex object don't can don't make her a sex object between two different men like give the girl a little bit more than that and then later when she you know starts her affair with hannibal i was like come on guys (laughs) like every aspect of my like feminist criticism is just yelling like please don't do this please don't do this i that was that was the one aspect of season two that i disliked and I and I don't I was right there with you. Don't get me wrong. It's just is nice to to go back and watch them season one and see that there actually is some. It didn't come out of nowhere because when I watched season two, it felt like it just randomly left turn. Now Alana's into Hannibal, uh, and and it was nice to see like a couple moments like this that I had sort of forgotten about actually <clears throat> be there in season one. Yeah, and that was, I think, the difference, that that criticism of the plot was twofold when we were all talking about it in season two, and half of it was, this is not a very good use of the character, and half of it was, this isn't believable, given the groundwork that's been laid. And I think that uh, going back and looking at this, the groundwork was there. It wasn't super prominent, but I think that there's a good argument that um, it was addressed somewhat. A couple little things for me in this section. When Hannibal kills the the doctor on the road, he's not wearing his his plastic suit, and you figure that like it'd be double reason to be wearing that because it's raining as well. And <laughs> yeah, the, oh right, I didn't even think about that. I love I love the plastic suit. <laughs> the like ridiculous like it's perfectly tailored to his body, just like all of his suits, his bespoke like serial killer outfit. <laughs> uh. Yeah, and well, just thinking of it as being like his go-to like rain slicker is also kind of awesome. <laughs> Did anybody just laugh and laugh when Hannibal said, "And no one's died as a result of my therapy"? Yes, because I had to pause the the episode because I was laughing so hard. It's <laughs> perfect. Yeah. Um, um, and and Hannibal's. Uh, I can see why you have bad dreams. Yeah. Because he has encephalitis, and you know that he's sick, uh, so they, that's why he's having the bad dreams, you jerk. <laughs> and he keeps poking him with, uh, like, a Miriam Last severed arm. Oh, that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> There's also that immediate recognition when he meets Tobias, uh, I think, so we'll see that in next week's episode, but serial mm-hmm. killers, no serial killers. Well, and this notion of Hannibal being a combination of Franklin and Tobias... 
and then to see those two parts of his personality represented in that that friendship of those two but we'll get into that more next week um yeah that's a that's a great point um the the other you know there's a couple of things but the, the last one i'll go to is uh um do you think if will wasn't sick seeing hannibal do the the emergency surgery would that have have made the connection for him because i feel like the way it's shot in that scene it's uh he almost gets it yeah there's that moment and then there's also when hannibal theorizes about the motivations of the ripper as he's looking at all of the photos spread across will's desk there are a couple moments i think where Han uh where will could theoretically put the pieces together and that's a big one that you mentioned Uh, Molly, was there anything else you wanted to mention in this section? I'm trying to think. I'm, I mean, just like I love that 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 Daphne um, that Daphne comes back and she's just like she's such a wonderful character, and I'm so glad that they kind of like ran away. Uh, you know, if I was gonna like ship two characters, it would be Hannibal and <laughs> Hannibal and Daphne, so they could lead this like very clean, lined life. I know they don't get yeah. there happily ever after, but <laughs> one can hope. Wait, who's who's yeah. Daphne? Oh, um, Daphne, do you, am I calling her the wrong name? Demar, oh, Dr. DeMaurier, yeah. Daphne, no, Bedelia DeMaurier. Bedelia, I don't know why I call her Daphne. I do this all the time. I have to go through my reviews and, like, re-edit re them with the correct names because I cannot <laughs> remember them for the life of me. Um, but, yeah, Bedelia, Bedelia. I don't know why she's Daphne all of a sudden. There's the, the writer because I, I do that right, all the time. Why. Okay, yeah, Rebecca, <laughs> duh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, let's see. The it would be nice. Bev is awesome in this. I miss her. And is awesome. The that Annabelle, the Abigail and Will scene feels like a sort of a dark mirror to their mind palace fishing scene from season two. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that that's that's all I have for for spoiled meat. Sean, you have anything else? Yeah. Uh, the last thing I'll mention is just the image of the the clockwise rotating shot of Hannibal's ear, which is uh, an image that we'll see echoed in. Season two, when um, when Will spits up Abigail's ear again in his cell, so really great use of recurring images on Brian Fuller's part. Uh, but we'll wrap it up here, and we'll also finish up the podcast here. And once again, thank you very much to Molly Eichel for making the time and talking with us. Molly, where can our listeners find you online? Um, they can find me at. Molly Eichel on Twitter. So that's um, M O L L Y E I C H E L. And, of course, at the AV Club with uh, your Hannibal reviews and all that when the show comes back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, Kate, where can listeners find you online? You can find me uh, at Sound on Site, writing up reviews and, uh, of course, putting out so many podcasts, including The Televerse, which is my weekly uh, podcast about the rest of, of TV. Mm -hmm. And then you can also find some of my reviews over at the AV Club as well. Uh, and in addition to that, you can find some of my written reviews at Sound on Site and also at TVOverMind.com. But that's it for this week. Kate and I will be back next week to talk about Season 1, Episode 8, Fromage. But thank you, listeners, for tuning in. This has been another episode of This Is Our Design. 